Hello, I am Cody Allingham, and this is the Transformation of Value podcast. Today I talk with Ben Javi. Ben is a Bitcoiner working for Amber App, a Bitcoin-only exchange, but he's also a writer. In this episode, we talk about a piece that Ben wrote for Bitcoin magazine titled New Zealand's Past, Putia and Future, CBDC versus Bitcoin. In this article, Ben illustrates a fascinating perspective on the contentious relationship between state and centralised money and the Māori people of New Zealand. The very existence of a singular, undemocratic Reserve Bank of New Zealand goes against the principles laid out in the Treaty of Waitangi for self-determination, though this is conveniently ignored to instead focus on a seemingly unending culture war that sees the Reserve Bank co-opting Māori imagery and symbols of guardianship whilst simultaneously engineering a recession. More broadly, the article outlines how New Zealand has always been at the mercy of overseas banks and the monetary policy of the Crown, and we are still paying for this today. Ben and I explore various avenues of discussion here, and we arrive at a place that sees Bitcoin really show itself as an opportunity for the empowerment and self-sovereignty of not only Maori communities, but all of New Zealand. If you want to get in touch with me, please send an email to hello at thetransformationofvalue.com, and I will get back to you. I do hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to support the show, please consider streaming some Satoshis via your favorite podcasting 2.0 platform, such as Fountain or Breeze. Otherwise, on to the show. Oh, yeah. How, so how long have you been over in the US for? Been there for about three years now. Yeah. You enjoying it? Loving it, eh? Yeah. Where are you originally from? From Dunedin. Oh, no way. So you're yeah. from down south and you, you you were in Dunedin and then you just left or you did you spend a bit of time anywhere else in New Zealand? Uh, been a bit nomadic, so a lot of time around Australia, Caribbean, Fiji and New Zealand and stuff, just kind of bouncing around. Yeah, and then uh, met a certain someone, so it's like time to settle down a bit. Yeah, I know that feeling. I mean, I, I'm from Hastings originally, and it was like it's a bit smaller than Dunedin, but you can kind of you either get out or you stay. And I was one of the ones who got out, and so I went on this whole journey and and that. But you, you often come back home, or for me, I come back home, and I think, oh man, this I could have stayed here, you know, and I could have had a life here, but it was. The horizons were so narrow, you know? Yeah. 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 And it's just like, there's so much to explore, so much to see, so much to experience that I felt it was just so limited to being like dirty old dunners for, you know, a gray, miserable eight months of the year. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm in Wellington at the moment and it's a little bit like that. It's like, it's, it's, it's a city, but it's not quite all the way there. Um, I left, um, I left Hastings and moved actually to Japan um when i was like 20 21 um oh, sweet and that really was quite life-changing going from you know the biggest uh, you know even auckland in new zealand it's our biggest city but it's still kind of a small place you can kind of walk you know the city yeah. and see everything and then you go to a big mega city like tokyo and you, you just see see everything you think man this is mind-blowing to kind of experience that scale i imagine the u.s would be a bit similar as well yeah it is for sure um but I try to avoid <laughs> cities and very dense populated areas. I just yeah. find that it's like a concrete jungle that I don't very much align with, I guess. Oh, really? So you you don't you don't really like that side of of uh, urban city living. You prefer the countryside a bit more. Yeah, for sure. Out with nature a bit more, and you know, you get to go around to farmers markets and you know, go meet your rancher because they only live you know ten minutes away, and you know, see how the the food's raised and everything. I don't know. It's just more my a, style. 
I've got a family friend actually who's from Wisconsin and I know uh, hunting and, and that sort of thing, hunting and fishing are quite big over there. Um, yeah. And it's quite a, an outdoors state. Um, yeah. And I, I, don't know, I appreciate that. I think there's something, I mean, this family friend, he, he's actually moved to Napier, so he's an American originally, but it's like someone who can understand that can really appreciate it in New Zealand as well. You've got the Kawekas, the Rohinis, all of that. Just, just there on your foot, on your doorstep, and that lifestyle that you get in New Zealand is, is I mean, it's it's quite wonderful. But you, the flip side of that is, it is a small country, and uh, we do have a lot of challenges here economically. You know, in terms of infrastructure, all of that stuff, which you're no doubt familiar with. Um, <laughs> but um, look, what I wanted to talk to you today about is a piece that you wrote a couple of years ago uh, for Bitcoin magazine. So New Zealand's past uh, Putia and future with CBDCs versus Bitcoin. Um, really interested to know sort of how you came came to write this piece, what your sort of motivations were and sort of where it all emerged from, if that's okay, please. Yeah, sure. Um, so I guess it kind of started with my childhood, like being brought up with this dichotomy of cultural values. So my dad was Pākehā, he was a cop and private investigator, and then my mum was Māori um, from Waitaha tribe. And uh, she got a PhD in Indigenous Studies and Peace Treaties. So there was a very big difference in like how they both viewed the world. Um, and so it kind of got me asking this question um, of like, how did we get to this point in time and like researching our, our history? Um, and so then you kind of, your heart sort of aches because you see like what colonialism has as an impact, right? And you see all the land loss, the slavery, um, and, and all the suffering from that, and then the conformity and complicity for the new sort of structure. Um, and then, like, it's really interesting because you'll see, like, where it lapsed in the past and where it failed. Um, so you can see that in New Zealand land wars. You can see that in um, the colonial bank issue. Um, when they first tried to monopolize the money, it ultimately failed because of uh, the la lack of confidence. And so then it gets you asking this question of, like, especially in regards to Māoridom, the tīnaranga where it's like, self-sovereignty right and um you know what does consent mean if like if you can't say no what does that mean for maori and then also from the financial aspect if the money is monopolized and debased in the name of stability you know is that violating the treaty of waitangi and like do you know what i mean like there's this rule set between maori and and the rest of the state or New Zealand in general, where um, they never ceded sovereignty. They were supposed to be self-determining under the Treaty of Waitangi. That's what Kawanatanga mean. Um, and so then trying to look at it from like understanding its past, trying to extrapolate that outward and sort of have some sort of future projection um, when the world is largely going down that technological social credit system route through central bank digital currencies. And so I just started mapping out who some of those key figures are um, and started analyzing the reports that the Reserve Bank and stuff were putting out there. 
Um, and then just tried to to piece all of that together because I see it as this binary outcome in the sense that, you know, people will always tend to use the best money available um, unless by force, which is why you have, you know, fiat in the first place. Um, and so the inevitable conclusion of fiat, though, is the central bank digital currencies um, or bust is the way I sort of see it based on the data that I present in there. Yeah. Now, that's um, that's really fascinating. I mean, I guess a little bit of my whakapapa as well, like um, my family a little bit further up the tree, though, um, are also in that um, in that interesting relationship, which I think is, um, you know, very New Zealand, which is one of my ancestors, came over with the British Army um, and married into, uh, or, you know, uh, had a Maori wife. And so it was the the beginning of my bicultural connection with New Zealand. And it's been interesting coming back, leaving, I was living overseas and coming back and kind of re-visiting uh, that uh, Turanga Waiwai and that place of standing mm. in my um, you know, my hometown and kind of looking at the story because uh, it was an interesting relationship because it was not a, an iwi relationship. Like um, they sort of left and, and she um, took the, you know, the, took on the customs of of uh, of what he was doing so they left um um you know the the uh, Taranaki region and, and moved to Hawke's Bay and basically left that behind and um started a, a blacksmith shop and a hotel and a few other things in, in Hawke's Bay and understanding that um connection you know there's something quite quite interesting because it uh, you know the the media would have you believe that this it's this kind of cultural war that it's this black and white that it's this um mm. you know very easily identifiable thing but you know for both you and me um for yourself a little bit closer to the present but for myself historically i mean we we are part of this uh connected um, um this marriage of of cultures and and it's a beautiful thing and i think uh, you know inspecting what that means um and what it means for new zealand today i, I think is really yeah. important um and certainly when it comes to the money and you sort of see that even even for my ancestors on on the british side they were also um colonized in the sense yeah, yeah. that you know none of us gained um you know so I, I think there's a certain dialogue that it's somehow the fault of the state today or that it's the yeah. fault of pakeha or something like that you know um white people basically like that there's there's this narrative that that's the problem, but actually I think if you if you run it back, it's it's a power it's the power structures, right? And if you really want to find some responsibility, it lies with the crown, which is on the other side of the world. But certainly it's uh it's the power structures, and I think the the process of colonization meant many things for many different people. But um, the self sovereignty of New Zealand and New Zealanders, where whoever you might be, uh, certainly being is certainly being infringed by. Uh, these central centralized structures, which are basically diluting the money supply. So it's, I mean, it's it's an interesting dialogue, and I, I really I think it is important to have these conversations. Mm. Yeah, it is an interesting co-popper. It, um, yeah, and, and you're quite quite right in the sense that the state tries to fan the flames of these culture wars or gender wars or or what have you. Um, when in reality, it's like they're expropriating time essentially from everyone when they dilute the monetary currency and but but the problem is is that historically um you know with like the land repossessions um 
and then like the understanding of i don't know if you're familiar with the austrian business cycle theory um where it's like that boom and bust like they knew that system quite well um and that's how they managed to actually take a lot of land from moldy as well um and then also those like closest to the monetary spigot obviously initially uh, a pakiha um and it's sort of like you get and more initial purchasing power and then as you spend that money the economy starts to adjust for inflation so until it trickles down mm-hmm. um so that on top of the land reposition and when you take into consideration the fact that the the money being debased and monopolized in the name of stability led to the financialization of certain assets for example like housing right So those things are always sort of going up in value in the long-term scheme of things, land and and housing. Um and that's because inversely the power, the purchasing power of the dollar is going down. Um and so what happens is um they come in and by they I mean like the crown, um right? And so I don't hold any hostility towards Pakiha because how can I? I'm like one of the widest people around. Yeah. Um but like what what ended up happening is they instill the system so because the maori introduced trench warfare and were actually quite competent warriors um even against muskets and what have you they had the treaty of waitangi um that was never upheld instead they had a system where they monopolized the money and as soon as you've monopolized the money it's like the monopoly on education the monopoly on media and communication the monopoly Uh, on basically everything is downstream of that because you can finance what you want um at the future generations expense in terms of like the national debt um yeah. so it is this weird sort of dynamic where when i say they i refer to um the crown i refer to statists i refer to um people who are proponents of that centralized system which disregards consent at a fundamental level Absolutely. I mean one thing uh, I remember reading uh, I think it was in the Oxford History of New Zealand reading about some of the um in in the um Wairarapa the uh, Maori there were really interested in actually leasing their land out and mm. they really didn't want to sell and there was a, a challenge there where basically the state said look you you have to sell it to us you know we're not going to let you lease it out to private people um and So these there was these moments because I think there was a certain sophistication and and very quickly the Maori learned how the system worked and you know they were like well we're not we're not going to sell we're going to lease it out and that you know the centralizing powers said no no way you have to sell it to us or we're not going to let you do that and there's a lot of examples of that historically where um confiscations um or even just through legal means uh, they were basically put into a corner um and forced to to relinquish that land and it was a because it was such a, a recent thing you know the um if you look at say you know the development of economies and and how um land gains value as work is done upon it and things like that um you know usually that's you know ancient history or it's so far away that we don't have any records of it but because this is relatively recent there's written records of the development of land um the improvements of land that kind of um that these sort of um economic actions that lead to you know making more productive land they they sort of things there's certainly um a lot to consider there um for sure and but, productive for who is probably the the better question right 
Well, there's there's also, I mean, if you look at sort of some of the externalities of it as well, you know, the burning of forests, um, mm-hmm. you know, there was a certain um, balance, you know, with, with things, but this, you know, this desire, which I often think of, you know, if you, if you sort of conceptualize the materiality of, you know, the raw land, you know, especially up, you know, forested, you know, forested hills and, and even where I'm from, you know, there was swamp lands, low lying um, um, forests and things like that, which all got taken out and turned into farmland. That extraction, I mean, where did that end up? You know, where did that value go to? Because you you can't really destroy value, right? It's, it's kind of like an energy, it moves around. And I often think, you know, you walk down, uh, you, you know, you're in the United Kingdom, you're in London, Manchester, Bristol, Plymouth, and you see just the massive architecture, um, mm-hmm. these these beautiful facades, these beautiful buildings, and you realize every kauri tree, every piece of burnt forest and farmland that that got cut, you know, every every forest that got cut down in New Zealand, every farmland that was uh, developed, uh, all of that value materialized in, in England. You know, it, it sort of transported, and even the you know even in Auckland, you've got a couple of nice buildings, you've got a couple of streets. But none of the infrastructure was built here. You know, we still don't even have any very good roads. We've got a railway, but it's pretty bad. Like, I think if you can, if you look at the flows of it, none of the value stayed in New Zealand. It was extractive, which is the story of colonialism, right? Yeah, it is mercantilist in nature. And we see that in multiple places, like in Africa with the Frank. I think Gladstein did a good piece on that. Um, or French Polynesia. Do you know what I mean? Like there's so many circumstances like that or the IMF giving out loans to these quote unquote third world countries, knowing that they'll never repay it. And then they just get to extract um, resources and land. Um, So it is a tale that's old as time. Yeah. And it's something interesting I wanted to to touch on. So uh, talking about the Reserve Bank. So the New Zealand Reserve Bank uh, was formed in 1934. Um, and I, you have got a bit of a timeline in your uh, article here. Um, but yeah, so 1934 established the Reserve Bank and really its original goal, or original mandate was um, to have the sole right to issue notes and coins. Um, and there, at that time, I believe there was legal convertibility to the British pound. Um, yep. But over time, and in the most recent branding exercise that the Reserve Bank has gone through, they've actually un- um uh, given themselves uh, a Maori name as well, um, mm. and I'd love to just sort of dive into that because you do give a breakdown of uh, Putia Matua and what that means. Mm. But could you maybe explain sort of how that name is even problematic and what it what it's supposed to mean? Sure. So Putia was what Maori deemed money, I guess, or a gift. It was kind of synonymous with one another. Um, te is just the, so the money. Um, and then Matua is like a respected elder. So Tiputia Matua is like, and in their words, they either say the prime um, source of finance or, and I think they use it in another way too as well, where it's like the respected um, financial institution or something along the lines of that. Um, and so, as you said, they initially started out where they were just managing coins and notes, and there was a proxy where you could go back to the the British um, fiat as well, which was kind of backed by gold at the time. And then, um, then they were actually the first ones to bring in the two percent inflation target. Um, so a- again, just you know, like 
um, exemplifying that once you have that monopolization of money, then that's when the, those centralizing factors really start to kick in elsewhere. Um, so to use that Maori lexicon and call yourself a respected uh, member of the money and then to call that even Putia in general is just like it's such a slap in the face. Um, and, and we see that by them when they changed on the 100th anniversary of the Treaty of Waitangi. They changed the face from King Tafio to Captain Cook on that day. So there's so many just like backhanded moments in that time. We had the lapse in the colonial bank issued money and then the land wars and then they somehow monopolized the money again. Like how was trust, you know, rebuilt from that or even is there today to have the audacity to call yourself like the respected elder of finance when central banking in and of itself is the fifth tenet of the you know Marxist manifesto? Yeah, like the Communist manifesto. It's just like it's so backward. Well, Up is down, left is right. It's it's clown world. And I'll tell you, Ben, I I walk past the Reserve Bank every day, so I live up um, mm. the, the end of town, and it's 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 really strange for me because you know my my old man he lives in Pudongaho, Central Hawkes Bay. It's um, very close to the land. You know, a lot of beef and lamb farmers up there. You know, it's, it's very rural. Um, they don't even really have cell phone coverage, and there's sort of the difference between you know Porongaho, Central Hawke's Bay, Tod, these places, and the the terrace, the Reserve Bank, the Beehive, and looking at the imagery they're using because I think they have actually co-opted Tane Mahuta, <coughs> excuse me, Tane yes. Mahuta, the grand, um, you know, the grand Kauri tree of of the forest, you know, the god of the forest. Yep. They've co-opted that image and. And, and, and as well as that image, um, they also refer to themselves as kaitiaki, which is like guardian. Yeah. Um, so it is just like it's it's, it's an affinity. I'm gonna scam. get myself wound. Yeah. No. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, yeah. uh, and look, I mean, I I absolutely hear you. And I, I think what I find interesting though is in in the affinity scam though we can find a certain truth, which is that they talk about Tane Mahuta, which is this um, you know ancient uh, kauri tree up up north. And it grows from the tiniest seed. And it's like, I often think, well, if you flip that, and I think about Bitcoin, from the tiniest seed, literally the seed phrase, um, you can set your children up with you know, a little bit of Bitcoin today. Um, in 100 years, in 500 years, you know, who knows what that UTXO is going to be worth? Um, yeah. You know, generational wealth for, for, for a very small amount at this point in time. Especially in contrast to like generational debt. Do you know what I mean? Like if you were to save, say, $100,000 and you want to hand it down to your children and in like 50 years they want to use it, what is the purchasing power of that going to be? What is your amount of debt as a citizen? What is the national debt going to be? Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like we've got it all backwards where it's like those closest in the power structure at the moment, when they create money and loan it out to their friends and stuff first, we're increasing that debt for future generations to to pay back. And because the only way to pay it back is to either get external funding into New Zealand to pay that back, um, because if you want to create more money to pay it back, there's obviously more interest associated with that. So I, I generally view it as a form of debt slavery, and it's not just for Māori, as you've discussed. And I, I do view that Bitcoin is the solution um, and, and that seed of life, in a sense, um, in the sense that it's just like that 
it's just a, a, a truth in the sense that gravity is. It's just like it's a physical reality um, where it's like you're going to have to compete with it. And every every point that you try compete is only going to highlight the austerity that you've involuntarily imposed. Um, so I, I look forward to you know them trying to bring it on, especially when they call themselves Maori deities and appropriate yeah. the most from the lower social classes. Actually, that's a good point. Like they've co-opted the image of Tani Mahuta, and in fact, what they're implicitly saying, and I literally walk past the steps of this building, what they're saying is that we are gods over you. Yeah, exactly. And, um, that's interesting. Um, I've got a quote here from your article. So you say, so Putia is is gift, right? So I would argue that Putia has to be founded by the people operating in a free market. It is contradicting to say that the New Zealand dollar is a gift when it continually loses purchasing power and has to be enforced from legal tender laws so that the crown can retain a monetary monopoly. Um, yeah. And it's, it's very timely because right now uh, in New Zealand, um, we're going through this... Um, in a way, it's kind of like a secret transition towards digital money and CBDCs, which is not getting any media coverage. And certainly myself and, and other Bitcoin and uh, uh, Bitcoin friends that I've been talking with uh, following this very closely and, uh, and, and you know, making submissions. There, there is uh, just closed uh, on Monday uh, submissions on, on the Reserve Bank's proposal for the future of private money. Um, you know, I wrote my piece and, and had my say there, but having met these people um, you know, I was at an event and, you know, I was having a chat with some of these people and I realized just how thin the facade is. Um, they really are trying to hold on to something. They call themselves a, a, a value anchor. They're really trying to justify their existence. And I feel like in a, in a roundabout way, it's like the Bitcoin's beating them already. They don't. Yeah. They just don't know it yet. Yeah. Well, I think they kind of do know it because in order for them to sort of keep relevance which is required to keep confidence keep the monopoly they need to show that they're innovative and that they're competing and that they're doing what's best for the people but that's inherently contradictive of what that whole structure stands for which is expropriation and involuntary contracts so that's why you see this whole like uh crypto not bitcoin or blockchain not bitcoin and you saw um you know the guy up in Auckland and he was creating private blockchain enterprises. I forget his name. Um, but at the same time, he's working with uh, Mitchell Pham, who is this Asian man who started the count digital council of Aotearoa. And he's talking about a, a social credit system, like identity verification in the digital age and central bank digital currencies. And it's just so funny because not only can we point out exactly who these people are, and ostracize them for promoting um, such Malthusian systems. Um, but we can also be like, this is, uh, and, and by this I mean Bitcoin, this is our only peaceful way out of this. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's either vote with your money or vote with your feet because you cannot sustain any confrontation with the monopoly on money, violence, and law. Because it will be a war of attrition. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is interesting. So I was actually at a Binance event that I, I went to to sort of find if I could find any other Bitcoiners. And I, I was really curious um, if to see what, I guess, what they were up to. Um, I was very skeptical of Binance, um, obviously, but 
I I went to this event and it was held across the road from the Reserve Bank up on um, next to the Beehive. So basically, you know, for anyone listening, in the heart of New Zealand's political district, this um, Binance event, and, you know, they've just become registered as, I think, the largest exchange that has a presence in New Zealand. Um, and what I found really quite um, concerning was that the content of their presentation at that time, and um, there were two Reserve Bank, senior Reserve Bank people there that I had a talk with, the content of their presentation was clearly aimed at basically greasing the wheels for um, having Binance provide some of this infrastructure. And it yeah. really, to me, it felt like there was, uh, it was almost like this kind of neo-colonialism, right? You're going to get this Chinese-American um, overseas entity, basically, because there's no capability in New Zealand. In fact, most people don't know this, but our money isn't even printed in New Zealand. Our notes are made in Canada, um, <laughs> like our physical, you know, um, notes. But this, there was this idea that, you know, we don't even have the infrastructure here to actually build the CBDC that they're trying to sell. And so they're going to get some foreign entity to do it. And it's like we're living version 2.0 of of this colonial dream, <laughs> that this colonial nightmare where a, 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 a company like Binance, potentially, which is what it felt like to me, kind of analyzing the situation that the Reserve Bank are there, they're scoping them out. I mean, because who are you going to get to build this this thing out? Yeah. Um, and if Binance do it, I mean, if you look at their 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 their, their history and 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 the, the slideshow that they went through was, you know, it was all about how compliant they are, you know, how much law enforcement workshops they've been doing, um, how, you know, how many, um, you know, those sort of figures and facts. Which I'm like, man, the, as a consumer, I really that that doesn't really interest me. But I, I could see why the government would or the Reserve Bank would want to be uh, seeing those kind of figures. Yeah, it's um, it's one of those ordeals where it's like. Fiat shares the same fate as crypto does. And the best that they can hope for is to be taken over and commandeered into a CBDC. Yeah. Um, because otherwise they cannot compete. Um, and that bifurcation of multiple of them doesn't make any sense because the monopolies tend to only want one because it's easier to manage. They're, fe they're feigning it. They're, they're, they're pretending that they want to have a discourse about a plurality of private yeah. money and private innovation and money. But um, I, I, I absolutely agree with you. They're not, they're not going to let that happen. And when I talked to one of these, so I was at this event and I was talking to this Reserve Bank senior policy guy and I was like, so what are you doing? And he, he straight up said to me, we're working on a CBDC. And yeah. that really concerned me because I was like, yeah, I kind of knew that was a thing that was a tranche of work that you were, that you guys were working through, but to come out with that straight away, yeah. um, was kind of quite, I wouldn't say shocking because I kind of expected it, but they are uh, they're, they're working and and everything else is a bit of a smokescreen and and they're, they're, oh, yeah. they're open for proposals. They want to have public feedback and all of that, but they're really just going to bin it. You know, they don't care what we have to say. Um, yeah, exactly. They never have. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> and again, that sort of re reiterated for me that there's stuff going on behind closed doors that mm. you know. And the Reserve Bank is problematic, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. But as a crown, it is a crown entity, so it's not government. It's not democratic in that sense. It's not. It's not like our uh, MPs. You know, who do you even talk to? Do they? You know, do they have a process to even engage properly? Because I yeah. don't think there's any accountability. Like they, they're actually the ones doing all of this stuff, but they're unelected. Yeah, I have. Um previously interviewed like the head policy advisor from um the nz treasury i have interviewed 
ex-central bankers from the RBNZ. I've interviewed economists. Um, he's now the head economist of ANZ. Um, but what you find is that a lot of these interviews will never get allowed to see the light of day um, because once you start asking some meaningful questions, um, then they're not so uh, happy for you to share and distribute that content. And so you're quite right. Um, what I found was it did violate the treaty 100%. Just nothing's ever going to happen about it. Um, you're right that you can't vote on monetary policy. Um, in fact, there's very little meaningful subjects that you can vote on. And then uh, the only real thing you can do is sort of vote with your money and your feet. But that's kind of the beauty of this age in the sense that if you've read the book, The Sovereign Individual, which I think every sort of Bitcoiner has, um, you understand that thesis where it's like, it's no longer just subjects, quote unquote, or citizens um, protesting by just like being in the streets. It's like, no, you can move to a, a jurisdiction that's better for tax purposes if it has some at all. Some don't. You can uh, opt out with Bitcoin and it's no longer just like the people versus the state because it's not just like a national um, conflict. It's an international thing. So every time you're choosing to use and save in Bitcoin, you're not only building the wealth of everyone else who wants to have that voluntary optionality to sort of divert from that social credit system. You're building their wealth and power to fight that system. But at the same time, you're taking power away from that involuntary uh, debt slavery system. And so enough people do that en masse. And then you have, you know, cascading liquidations and the dominoes start falling. Yeah. Um, and that's all that's needed. It's just needed that, you know, one to 10% of people, uh, um, the, the intolerant minority, the remnant, um, and that'll make all the world's difference. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, looking at, um, I mean, the Reserve Bank again, you know, there's a certain hubris to them, you know, in, in the way they operate. Um, and mm. I, I felt that, I, I, as I said, I met with this Reserve Bank senior policy guy at this, uh, this, this uh, shitcoin event, and I was like, okay, you know, he's like well what, who are you affiliated with and and then i was like well you know i'm a bitcoin i'm affiliated with myself um yeah and, yeah and it's like they 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 fail or maybe you know they struggle to conceptualize that you know as a sovereign individual you know i'm not i'm not here with a company you know i have a, yeah i have a job i do i do you know commercial work but i'm not here through that i'm here for myself and in a way that's why you can have companies emerge that are sh shilling their crypto or whatever, and they they seem for a short while at least they seem to get the kind of the limelight, but on the background, Bitcoin sort of just keeps on going and it, it keeps on getting just a, a footnote reference in all of their media, all of their discussions. You know, it's all about stable coins, all about the shit coins, the cryptos, yeah. Bitcoins, just this little thing down the bottom, but it just keeps on going. And by providing an alternative. That, that optionality i think that's really the power here is that suddenly we've got two two paths that we can take and yes that i, I think coming back looping back into the you know maori and and how that can work you know seeing um the way communities operate um and how decentralized money is actually a very um i think applicable concept for maori um, mm. And you know, if you look at communities, as I said, my dad lives out at Porongaho. It's um, you know, it's a lot of a lot of beef and lamb, a lot of firewood, pine, that sort of thing. You know, um, 
you know, pine plantations and all of that. And but it's it's a very local community. Um, and I can see something like Bitcoin existing as a very useful medium in a, in a community like that, where you know outside money doesn't even yeah. really need to be used. Um, it can just be peer to peer. Um, but yeah, what, what I mean, what's your thoughts on on Maori communities, iwi, um, uh, adopting Bitcoin and and using it? Sure. I think uh, to begin with, it's a premise that there's definitely a lot of lessons that we should have learned from King Tafio. He went to the Queen to petition to set up his own bank. He got granted those rights. He set up a full reserve bank, which is great, but it can't compete with fractional reserve um, in in the long run because the fractional reserve bank can steal wealth from all of its users to sort of entice further users and grow that Ponzi um, at the expense of customers for for the other full reserve bank, which needs to charge more in regards to its services because it has to keep all of its reserves. It doesn't get to spend its users' funds. Um, So you can't compete with the full reserve system. You can't go back to gold. And the reason why is it's expensive to store, to send, and to verify its authenticity when we see billion dollars of tungsten-covered gold. um, or, Or, sorry, tungsten covered in gold. And so going back to that precious metal that physicality led to centralization because it needed some sort of secondary medium like the paper uh, or coins which are divisible easy to send easy to verify Um, so going back to that is just it's literally insanity because you're going back to a system that failed and you know it the alternative is barter but barter doesn't give you savings and the ability to interact with wider communities or international communities it means that you're stuck in that localist sort of area, um, which is fine, but then you don't get things like the specialization and division of labor. You don't get price signals and all of the time and efficiency that comes from money as a system to overcome the double coincidence of wants. So you need a money to sort of persist and exist because otherwise it's a war of attrition against a very powerful enemy because they have monopolies on everything Um, and so you need some sort of way to not only exist but to actually grow in terms of purchasing power because at the end of the day um, that's how you all manage to have you know a good ho-order you know money touches every aspect of that your buddy is it cold is it damp do you get to sleep in it well your food the quality of food your quality of education, you know, you'd need putia, not fiat, um, in order to sustain generational wealth and health. And so what I think in regards to Māori adopting it is that they're very technologically averse, which I understand because, you know, historically speaking, that's led to us basically losing everything. Um so I, I understand the adversity to it, but it's one of those truths that will permeate no matter what. Um, so I guess they'll get the price that they deserve. Whereas, you know, if it's a binary outcome between CBDC and, and Bitcoin, as we've stated, um, and they take too long to sort of understand the dynamics at play, then it'll be at a higher price and it'll come at the loss of that purchasing power. So I've had a few consultations just trying to explain the the basic concepts, Um, but it's no easy feat because you have to explain like, why is money important? 
what is money? Why is Bitcoin important? What is Bitcoin? Like that's a, a solid three to four hour discussion to give like the light <laughs> overview. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, especially to a crowd that's technologically averse. So it's definitely a difficult conversation to have, but I think um, the young young Māori sort of see, you know, what's up. They're more technologically adept. They are more familiar with, you know, social media and how things can go viral. They're more familiar with technology in general. So I think it'll just be a thing where it's like the younger generations, it's our responsibility to take accountability for the system, to take responsibility for it, because if we don't, no one else will, um, and to sort of have those meaningful conversations. Because I don't know about you, but my household, on my dad's side, it was always very like shallow conversations, like, hey, how are you? Good, how are you? And it's like you kept, you didn't really talk about anything emotionally. And then on my mum's side, you could talk about whatever you wanted on the on the Māori side. I don't know if that's a cultural thing, a gender thing, um, but if we don't start having those more meaningful conversations, you're going to wake up and it's like, oh, you have to show your identity to get in the supermarket. Oh, you've had too much steak this week. It's only crickets for the rest of the week. Yeah. And it, it, will, it will get that bad. Oh, you want to protest? Oh, that's your transport shut down for the week and your money turned off for the week. It, it will yeah. be that on and off switch for it. And if we don't start waking up to that now, um, I really fear for, you know, Māori and all of New Zealand, I really fear for that future. Absolutely. And I think this is where my journey um, really came in as well with Bitcoin is over the last few years. I mean, you obviously you've been uh, in the United States, but myself being back in New Zealand, I, I left uh, Asia where I was, you know, working and living, came back to New Zealand. I thought, oh, this is great. You know, the government don't really have much to do with me here, you know, because they're kind of in your face where, <laughs> in, uh, where I was in Japan and China. You know, they, they kind of, um, they, they get um, they get in the way. Um, and I was like, oh, New Zealand's great, it's easy. But then that, that all changed pretty quickly. And I was very yeah. shocked with what happened coming back with the lockdowns and everything. And I was like, man, th th this is not what I signed up for. And in a way, New Zealand was more susceptible to it because we're politically naive. You know, New yeah. Zealand's never had a real dictator. We've never had anything like that. So um, it's kind of like we were just taken for a full ride. And at the same time, all of this other stuff was pushed through and it's really quite disturbing and yeah. we're in a bit of a calm and at the moment where it's like well you know there's an election coming up and people are sort of sitting on their hands but i i feel like i absolutely agree with you you know you're you're gonna have to show your papers um yeah and this is where for maori as well um you know where i grew up um in hawks bay you know it's a very maori area and i realized there's a lot of latent potential but it was almost through the actions of the state, this kind of promotion of this kind of dependence on the state as well in a lot of areas, which is quite uh, destructive. Um, and if I contrast sort of where I grew up to where my dad lives now, um, which is very self-sovereign, so, you know, Flaxmere, Hastings, that area, you know, it's this very dependent um, kind of a, a setup, whereas you go to Pronghoe and it's very uh, self-sovereign, you know, everyone kind of looks after themselves, there's a really nice community out there. And... That, for me, that's like the real um, community, the real kind of Maori uh, culture, which is that kind of community building, uh, familial, generational um, uh, connections. You know, um, yeah. it's just down the road from the longest place name um, in, in Central Hawke's Bay, which is like, you know, they've been on that land for a long time. And if you see the generations, you understand that there's already that generational kind of low time preference, which really aligns with Bitcoin thinking. Um, yeah. 
Um, I agree. The the technology of it is perhaps a little bit hard to communicate, and and also the ideology of fiat and just the system and kind of the you know this is the opportunity to break out of that cycle. Um, and trying to communicate that is it is a challenge, and it requires hours, um, and it requires discourse. But I think one opportunity is that people who are closer to the land, and I've really found this, I don't know about you, but people who are closer to the land tend to understand Bitcoin a lot easier than people in the city. Um, so technology people, engineers, uh, you know, software engineers, people like that, interestingly enough, are almost the ones who are less likely to get it. Um, whereas you talk, yeah, and you, you know what I mean? And I talk to farmers, I talk to people out in the countryside, and they're like, yeah, money should be real. And they don't mean digital versus physical. They mean it should have. It shouldn't be this abstraction of the government. It should be real. Yes, you exactly. get that right. Yeah, yeah. And, and just to touch on a few points there, because there's a little bit to unpack. Um, some of those sweeping rules when it came in uh, for COVID and stuff like that. It was like, you know, the lockdowns. They tried to mandate stuff, um, and then at the same time, though, there was backdoor handshakes between like jacinda and the world economic forum i i posted a piece about her too because she was a young global leader she signed new zealand up for the test pilot for ai governance which is just another term synonymous with the social credit system and then you have people like david seymour who was also pro-vax mandate the opposition and the national party was also pro it so you have this like false dichotomy um of actually being able to vote your way out of tyranny and it's just never been the case in all of history that that has ever been possible um and when you say people who are more technologically familiar get stuck into the crypto side of things yeah they do because they're they're close to those city centers generally as you said they are used to like a good pay um and so they're not used to like oh, my dollar's losing purchasing power. No, it's like, so they view it from a, a different lens. It's just like people in Argentina or Lebanon or Venezuela, they view Bitcoin completely different than anyone in America would because they you know, might wake up one day like Lebanon did recently and they lose 90% of their wealth overnight just because they decided to digitally print more. So there's definitely some pockets of people who are, are more staunch and sort of grok it quite quickly. I guess the the only way to sort of to do that though is grassroots in the sense that you've probably seen recently the you know beef initiative the Australian beef initiative and stuff like that where it's like shake your rancher's hand pay them proper money um and so it's like through this grassroots that we're all going to start building this um circular economy uh and so like that's how that's how we have to go about it but these farmers as much as they get it uh, it's not simple in the sense that oh, I'll turn up and here's your gold, you know, and then I'll just grab my my beef and I'm on my way. It's like, no, you're going to have a hardware wallet. You've got to have a node. Do you know what I mean? Like you don't have to have it all straight away, but it, it's definitely a lot of growth um, in order to get there. And then when people say um, in response to that, though, like, oh, they'll never understand that. It's like it's really as easy as writing down 24 words um, and just familiarizing yourself with the software. The alternative is trusting the central bank not to debase the currency, trusting the commercial banks not to lend out waves of credit with barely a fraction in reserve and to protect your identity, and then trusting those three and the payment processes not to censor your transactions 
due to to what have it you know whether it's a political view or or something along the lines where you posted something on social media that you probably shouldn't have yeah. um and so it's just a, about like the more that the state pushes and tries to stay relevant and tries to become authoritarian the more appealing the alternative becomes the more people that head that way the more value gets drained from the state the more value goes to the people it's just like I, I do view it as that sort of inevitability. Um, even though there are definitely things that can go wrong at this point, it's just like you see how hard they're fighting against it. It really seems like a Hail Mary to try and introduce this CBDC system before it's too late. Yeah. Um, but I think it's already too late. Yeah, no, certainly. And and I think the other trend which I've really felt over these last few years is the um, centralization of government and local government in New Zealand. And yeah. so... I mean, really, um, Three Waters, a few other things, which, uh, you know, controversial depending on who you talk to, but certainly the the high-level political take is that it's removing power from local government and councils, which are already pretty pretty powerless. You know, they can set the rates and, and things like that, but it's all moving to Wellington, you know, the capital. Yeah. And this concerns me because, you know, I, I look around Wellington, I don't see any cows, I don't see any orchards, I don't see any farmland. These guys don't understand that <clears throat> New Zealand's economy is based on you know, agriculture, excuse me, and that, you know, you go out to Porongho, you go out to, uh, you know, you go up north, you go to the Waikato and you see this farmland and you see that this, I mean, this is what New Zealand, uh, you know, is, this is what we are and not uh, as a small percentage of people working on the land, but it's, it's, it's our country and yeah. that, that rural urban divide um, where you've got farmers who are being, um, you know, taxed and you've got emissions trading scheme stuff all of this stuff which is just so much compliance and obviously there is an environmental you know approach and it needs to be a negotiation and a, and a discourse but a lot of it feels like it's kind of top down and it can be very yeah. destructive because you know you, you push a farmer f enough and they they plant pine trees instead of um, growing food um, that's not going to feed anybody um, yeah and there's these, these sorts of things which I do find a bit concerning and it feels like it's a global thing, you know? It's like we're not... For sure it is. We're not, we're not the only ones. Yeah. You can see that as well, you know, with um, the European Central Bank really struggling recently and now they're like, climate change is our biggest issue. It's like, oh, how many trillions are you going to have to print for that? Do you know what I mean? And then it's just like, if you go down that rabbit hole, it's just like it, they're using skewed metrics to frame certain things so that they can centralize power further and the you know moldy have been weaponizing that against themselves in the mm -hmm. sense that one tribe will weaponize the state so that they can get more land and territory um like naitahu of i'll name names mm -hmm. um and then you know i've worked for moldy charities as well and then they start talking about esg and all of that to try and get funding from the state to build x y and z and it's just like you don't quite grok it, but you are weaponizing the state against your people. Yeah, you might get a papakaiing or something out of it, right? But this is going to have long-lasting effects that are going to really um, influence your mokapuna's ability to have a meaningful existence. Yeah, well, I mean, speaking of Naitahu, which effectively are the iwi for the South Island, right? They are basically, a, I mean, they are a corporation. You know, they've got operations they are a mini state in that sense. They don't have um, full powers, but they're very professionally corporately run. And I often think, you know, again, as I said with my, my whakapapa, you know, my Maori ancestry is something that I'm really uh, interested in. I've been learning a lot about lately, but I mean, we don't really even have 
you know, an, an iwi affiliation. So I don't, I don't even fit into that that box. You know, mm. I, 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 I kind of can, but it, it's not, it's not a connection that can be connected to to an entity like Naitahu, where it's like, okay, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to buy in and get these shares of this thing. You know, it's that almost feels like it's a very um, statist uh, corporate approach. Whereas what what I'm interested in is is the connection to the land and uh, you yeah. know a little bit of more of the spiritual side and that sort of thing and for me um, you know and, and family right and 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 you know my immediate family and, and extended family and for me that's the connection that I've become very interested in um, and and the ancestral piece but when you look at it as just another corporatization of you know state power and centralization. Um, and as you say, planting pine forests and doing ESG and having strategies and all this stuff. I don't know. It's it's like a mutation of that centralized um, kind of colonial system in a way. It's like, a, I, I don't know. You, you know what I mean? It is. Yeah, yeah, because ESG, the environmental societal um, sort of impact, um, it's like that's the, the state's policy. They have set that agenda you catering to that thinking that you're going to get the bigger end of the stick um is naive like look at your history that has never been the case where maori have come off well from interacting with the state in some sort of legal capacity it has always ended in expropriation of wealth or land mm. um and so it's just like yeah again yeah. it's just working with the state working with the monopoly to try and increase your share of the pie is yeah. such a short-sighted attempt to sort of make meaning of your life, you know, and have that purpose. Like you really want that to be your legacy is aiding the state to take away iwi land from some other iwi or to take away wealth from someone else. Um, and then what are they doing with all of that wealth too? Have you looked at like the national foreign liabilities and where all that money actually flows to? Mm. It's just like, that's what you're aiding there is that, extended mercantilism it hasn't gone away yeah no that's um really interesting man but look i think as a i guess um sort of closing up i i, I really as i say, i really enjoyed reading your article i think it's a great perspective um looking at um how bitcoin uh, can be considered um through this maori sovereignty self-sovereignty um lens uh in new zealand and how um it can provide something that's aspirational and hopeful um given that you know in a lot of cases um Maori communities are ones who are um, at, mo- at most most disadvantaged by the central bank system uh, and the debt, you know, the debt creation, uh, the debt system. Um, you know, I only have to go back to my hometown and see the the DTS, you know, where they rent out whiteware and TVs for you know however many dollars a week. And I think, man, this is, I mean, this is this is uh, exploitative indentured servitude where you have to rent out a washing machine or a television and you know, I don't see that in Central Wellington. I don't see that in Queen Street. I see that in Hastings. I see that in Waipukuro, you know, these places. And I think that stuff, um, if we can provide the information, have the, the conversations, have have the hui about what this can what the alternatives look like. Um, you know, maybe we can see some really great initiatives that are aspirational for Maori, but or for for everyone, basically. Um and uh, as a small country, I mean the Reserve Bank is just up the road. It's a small building. There's only, you know, it's it's not untouchable in the sense that um, I think if enough Kiwis stood up and said, hey, we're actually just going to use this other thing. I mean, they really, they can't do much about it already, but they definitely couldn't do much if everyone said they're going to change and they change. 
Um, so yeah, I mean, yeah. for me, it feels hopeful. Oh, it's definitely hopeful. I feel that as well. I feel that that part of the the sort of Bitcoin hero's journey, if you will, is sort of realizing the wasteland that fiat is. Um, and then you become like this doom and gloom, nihilistic sort of hedonistic person. Like, oh, it's, it's, you know, they're stealing from you. You know, that consent is disregarded. There's nothing you can do about it. And then you find this like solution. It's like, oh, I can opt out of that. And then all of a sudden you sort of overcome that nihilistic um view and then you become optimistic you start working on yourself as an individual you start trying to help others sort of see that orange light as well um and then you return home the hero and get to like share that lesson learned with people so that they can follow those footsteps too mm -hmm. and so focusing on like individual prosperity is what makes the collective better yeah no absolutely man and look, i think it's great stuff um, in terms of what you're doing and sort of um, if people want to learn more, I mean, you said that you, you'd done a, a few interviews and things like that. Is this something that you're publicly sharing? I mean, where are you at the moment in terms of your work publicly with Bitcoin? Uh, is that something you could talk about? Sure. I work with uh, the Amber app. Um, so we're a Bitcoin only exchange, have been since 2017. Um, I stopped writing content from that last piece that we just discussed today. And that's because I wasn't sure if I wanted to be the face or vocal about it in the sense that there could be some repercussions for it. Um, and now I've started writing content again, um, which I'm really looking forward to. And I just don't care. I'm just going to speak the truth. And if that makes me a martyr, then so be it. Um, so, yeah, I'll be helping out the Amber app, helping other people start the hero's journey and along it. And I'll be uh, pumping out some more content soon. Yeah. What's uh, do you have like a um, a place where people can can follow along with that? What's what's the best way to um to, to see when you do um, push push out some work? Where where can they find that? Good question. I don't want to dox my num, um, which is a okay. Twitter handle. Okay. But um, if you go to the Amber app, um, you join their Telegram community. Uh, feel free to reach out, and I'll happily respond and help in any way I can. Yeah. No. Absolutely, man. I um, fully respect your privacy there. Um, all right, man. Well, look, um, Ben, I really appreciate it. Um, this has been a great conversation, and it's actually one that I, I would love to to, to dive into um, these uh, adjacent topics again with you in the future. I, I really feel like there's a lot here. Uh, myself being really passionate about this, um, and and for what New Zealand can can be and what it can do here, um, I think having thought leaders like yourself, um, and who we can have this conversation with, I really, I mean, for me, that's um, really valuable. So, thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Cody. I uh, definitely don't view myself as a thought leader, but <laughs> always happy to help, brother. All right. Thanks, Ben. Kia ora. Welcome. Kia ora.